Hey, welcome to the Morning Mic Check. I'm Pat Brown here with Mike Metzger. Mike and I have known each other for a while now. I first met him around 2010, and he's become one of the key mentors in my life. Over the years, we've had countless conversations, and in almost every one, I've walked away having discovered something new. Mike has this unique ability where he can reframe a conversation, and you begin to discover a deeper reality around you. It's a bit like Alice tumbling down the rabbit hole. I'm releasing these conversations as an invitation to follow me as I go down that rabbit hole. Good morning, Mike. <laughs> Good morning. <laughs> so I had a had a interesting message come across. Uh, we use Slack at work, and I'm a part of a different outside of work even uh, shared channel with different managers. And a a question came across that I thought was pretty applicable. And the question was, if there was a metric you could choose to measure your team's productivity that's currently difficult or impossible to track, what would you choose? And uh, I thought it'd be worthwhile talking about that because not only would I like to reply to that wisely, um, but I think it's helpful for many to understand measurement. Obviously, measuring teams, sure, to some extent, is is important and necessary. Where I've been bit by that in the past has been um, in, in, in two situations in particular. So I work at a software engineering company. It's, we have some sort of, sort of intangible things to measure, but we don't really have clearly defined standards to say, oh, this person is doing poorly because it's just, it's hard to do that. And I've been bit twice now when I've had uh, employees that have, have just not really kept up and have, have not uh, completed their work or been a successful part of the team. And when you go down the path of HR and you have to deal with either performance improvement steps, et cetera, you have to have some clear metrics to say, well, this is, this is how we are we're looking for you to explicitly improve. And I haven't been able to walk down those paths very well. Um, and so that's where not having any measurements or something of that sort can really come back to bite you. Um, but also if, uh, if you pick the wrong measurements, I've been at times where people have picked these, sort of well-intended measurements to to reap success. And of course, you get people that see that and go, okay, well, that's exactly what I need to do. And they start working towards that. And that's really not what you want them to be doing. For example, in software, if you write a ton of code, if, if, you're, if you're measured by how much code productivity you have and you write a ton of code, well, you could end up writing really bad code, just a lot of it. And now <laughs> you are the top of the leaderboard. And so that's a, that's a really almost a silly example, but I'm sure it's valid in some orgs. So I'm curious how you would first unpack that question. Um, do you think that's maybe not the right question to ask, or is there a better question to ask in regard in that regard? And, and are there actually some things that we could land on that would be helpful? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a big question. So yeah. for our <laughs> <laughs> kind of a, uh, so for our listeners, repeat the question. Yeah, the question asked uh in this channel was if there was a metric you could choose to measure your team's productivity that's currently difficult or impossible to track what would you choose got it helpful okay so let's uh parse it out a little bit first of all have you ever asked the question why are we given to measure why metrics why, why are we given what's in human nature that's given to measure 
and human nature. Oh, wow. Um, I didn't think it was that profound a question. Well, I was just thinking in, in oh, general, wow. why, why do we, given a measure, I mean, there, there's definitely uh, a link back to, to scientific, I mean, um, uh, yeah, scientific management and, and that whole idea, uh, going back to Taylor and, and his approach to measuring productivity with workers, et cetera. But uh, I wasn't sure if you were thinking of something more existential with, oh, wow. uh, to human nature. <laughs> Let's be careful here. Most we can't even spell existential if you spot us <laughs> the first eighteen letters. So let's not go down that path. <laughs> so yeah, there's definitely a connection back to the enlightenment here, and, and and really scientific management and some of the the fluff that's we've talked about the book uh, management myth and kind of disproving some of that fluff. But um, go for it. Well, I, I, you know, uh, I'm still hung up on that existential stuff. <laughs> I'm trying to think, am I really here right now? <laughs> what if I'm not here? Let's talk about that. I'm sure listeners <laughs> clicking off podcasts right and left. <laughs> uh, editors note, listeners, we do these early in the morning, so we have not been drinking. And uh, I, uh, So actually, uh, I'm reminded right now, you know, Chris Berman, when he was with ESPN, I think he still is. We did the nightly thing, especially baseball. And he hits along, back, 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 back. And I think right now, no, we got to go back, 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 all the way to creation. If we're encoded in the nature of God, what does God do at the end of every day of creation? He says it was good. He measures it. That's a measurement. Mm. So that's what I meant by there's something, uh, there's something deep in our, uh, hey, let's start keep using heavy words here. There's something deep in our psyche. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) These are all words you can use that get fired at work. (laughs) Uh, There's something deep in us in human nature to measure. Um, it, it can be as simple as uh, raking leaves. And as you walk away, you kind of look back. And there's also a sense of, yeah, that looks, that looks better. That looks good. Um, trim, trim your lawn, trim your hedges. Uh, make a meal, put it down. You, kinda, you, you, you scan it. You look it over to go, hmm. I mean, some people even take pictures and post them. This is what we're eating tonight. Um, so we're given to measure because... At the end of every day, God looks it over, Father, Son, Spirit, and they pronounce it to be good. And, of course, the really good news is when they create humanity, they say, this is very good. Ever thought about why it goes from good to very good? Because we're better. (laughs) And we're going to let them know it. Yeah, well, we are uh, made in the image of God. The animals are not. No, that doesn't mean that all of creation doesn't bear his fingerprints. It does. And technically, that's just a metaphor because he didn't have to put his hands to work. He spoke it and it happened. So, but the difference with us is we're made in the image of God. And that is a... um, should freight us or weight us with an enormous responsibility that we're not just rats and cats and animals and dogs frolicking around the lawn, as fun as that is. 
we, I mean, we have what's called the differences were called, we have moral responsibilities. So the, you know, the old joke is, you know, if your dog pees on my carpet, that's not sin. You pee on my carpet, that is sin. And you're going to be called out for it. So it's, uh, we have moral responsibilities. So that's why uh, God measures. So it's just in, it's in human nature to measure things. Where we get in trouble is exactly what you know. Beginning some, I don't know necessarily when it began, but it, it certainly, what it bears out in the Enlightenment, Enlightenment really is poking the middle finger at uh, anything beyond myself as being the ultimate final authority for right and wrong. If you just imagine flicking the bird, that's the enlightenment. And so what you're doing when you're flicking the bird, it was what was uh, called before the enlightenment is we live on received wisdom. What does received wisdom mean? That phrase, by the way, what, what would you say, Pat? Uh, I mean, wisdom handed down. I often think if I were to sit in front of, uh, you know, like the wise sage or the wise experienced individual in your life, you're, you're receiving wisdom from that person. Um, I don't know. Is that how's That's that? That's right. That's it. Which is what happens in, uh, uh, practices. So when you go to law school, they're not, you know, the first course isn't, hey, let's talk about what should be right and wrong. Mm, right. You, and same in med school. Hey, let's everyone share your thoughts on what's the human body. So you still see the traces of this in, uh, now, by the way, you can see how the liberal arts have gone wacky because Here's as C.S. Lewis said, you get 10 people sitting around a poem by T.S. Eliot, and everybody goes, hey, let's talk about what we think Eliot was saying. So received wisdom is different because it takes perhaps thousands of years in the case of a law school and says, here's what's been handed down to us and we sit inside it. It's what it's called to think institutionally. And again, a lot of people I know push back against the word institutions. And I just urge some moderation because what's unique about the Judeo-Christian tradition is we believe in a triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which is by definition an institution. And it was the ambassador to Hezbollah some 20 years ago in a Wall Street Journal article who noted, he said, the difference between Islam and you in the West, Christians in America, is you have institutions and we don't. And he was right. By that he meant Allah is one. That's an individual. The triune God is an institution. Three persons sharing one nature. So once you start there, that gave this, this um, understanding through the ages of there's a goodness in these uh, institutions. They hand down wisdom. And the Enlightenment certainly eroded that. So I think that where this gets off track, as you noted rightly, is where the Enlightenment didn't erase human nature, but uh, to use a Lewis, C.S. Lewis phrase, it bent it. And it bent it, the direction of it, in a way that uh, 
in the end, in my, my opinion, it'll do some good like to measure, but it ultimately won't be uh, ultimately meaningful and satisfying. To which I, yeah, I was a, uh, I can't think of who did the work on this, but years ago, listeners can Google this and find it, or I have a friend who has it if we dig it up and find it for you. But there was a study done years ago in business that took the average employee six months to recover from a performance review. Hmm. It was so disemboweling. It was so discouraging. It was so, so on and so forth. So, I mean, name the average person and say, hey, my review is coming up. I'm so looking forward to it. <laughs> and so the, uh, the Enlightenment bent that, and you're right, uh, Frederick Winslow Taylor, the father of scientific management. Why was it called scientific, by the way? I mean, it's, it's attempting to, uh, to define a management process that is uh, taking the same approach of science. Given as opposed given these as variables, a, we expect yeah. these outcomes. Science as opposed to? Something not science. <laughs> well, I tell you what. You were the <laughs> Sharp this morning, Mike. Man, oh man. <laughs> anyway, yes. Now, when, and you can, you'll discover why in a moment, why, uh, when did Frederick Winslow Taylor sort of hit the market? Uh, wasn't that the, the beginning of the Harvard <clears throat> Business School and they adopted his kind of methodology? Yeah, first, and he was with U.S., uh, one of the steel industry before then. Yeah. Um, so that would put it the early 20th century, so about 100 years ago. Now, that's fascinating because 50 years before Taylor, we had a monumental shift really this great divide that C.S. Lewis talked about. And that divide included, beginning in the mid-1800s, the divide between, drumroll, religion and science. It's called positivism. Yet again, another, sorry, the listeners this morning, this is the morning of dense words. Positive, <laughs> that's what... Uh, Philosophers, you know, they use these. So philosophers came up with this thing called positivism. And remember that the definition of a philosopher is someone who goes down deep, stays down long, and comes up all wet. And <laughs> so they developed this phrase positivism. It comes from uh, Augustus, Augusta Comte, who said uh, societies go through three phases. And uh, the first one is... Um, the second one, though, is theological, and the uh, uh, first one's theological, the second one is more philosophical, and the third one is science, and that's, and these, that's the most positive stage, and he felt like we've come through these, and now we're in the positive stage, and positivism introduced the idea that science is the realm of knowledge and facts, religion is the realm of faith and just personal opinion, hence positivism introduced the notion that when you're not dealing with facts, the highest virtue or value rather is tolerance. So Pat, you may be a Christian, 
But a Christian to be a good Christian is tolerant of everyone's views because no one can be right. What that did for reviews that we're talking about here is it took us right out of the equation. Instead, management became scientific management. That's what Taylor was saying. So they adopted a view of scientific management. By the way, Taylor, by his own admission, treated human beings, Hungarian workers, at his, at his first measuring um, experiment at, uh, I believe it was U.S. Steel. He considered them to be oxen. Again, we're back to Scripture distinguishes between animals and human beings. He didn't. Taylor. So once you have a management system that considers people, doesn't consider them human beings in the way that Scripture considers them, then you're going to run into some trouble trying to do performance because you still have the image of God working through you, that DNA, but it's going to be bent. And so it's been 100 years of not entirely bad, but certainly uh, reviews that are not as productive or helpful or beneficial as they could be. Yeah, that was a, that's great unloading. So <laughs> I just had to get that off my chest this morning. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so yeah, how do those, well, I, I like the position you just took there at the end, which is we're not just knocking on this idea of, of measuring in a bent form, but it actually does. There are ways that could be more helpful and beneficial. And so as an yep. organization, you can't, you can be healthier as, as a team, as a, as a leader in, in, uh, of any team, it, it will help your people more. You'll do better to love your neighbor if you tweak things a little bit. So what would that, what would that look like? Mike? Like what, it, how do we, how do we get back to what is beneficial? What is helpful? What's, what's a, a different frame to look at this from? Yeah, that's, um, that's a good way to put it. By the way, uh, so we referenced Matthew Stewart's book, Pat, you did. It's called The Management Myth, Why the Experts Keep Getting It Wrong. It's a 10-year-old book. I encourage readers to read it. It's a fun read. Uh, Matthew can be uh, wickedly funny sometimes. And uh, according to the book and his bio, he lives out in Santa Barbara. Anybody who lives in Santa Barbara, California is pretty smart guy to me, but pretty nice place. <laughs> and um, so read the book. Because your question is this, um, the actual, the, uh, the question should be this. And it's in the lectionary readings, even this morning. You know, God continually says to his people, return, return, return. The history of Judah, for example, they had gone on what he called the wrong path for 500 years. Well, what do you do? Return to the right path, the ancient path. Now, I know that we're just talking here as believers that you can't walk into your software firm and say, hey, here's the solution. Let's return to the ancient path. <laughs> that would go over really well. <laughs> that goes, they go, they're making notes for Pat's next performance review. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's, a, it's what C.S. Lewis 
wrote in one of his books, he said, if you're on the wrong path, progress is not going forward. It's returning. It's turning around and returning to the old path. So what does that look like? Well, that's where I think this book by uh, Stuart actually uh, is on to it. Because uh, we won't give away the whole game, but um, you know, he worked for one consulting firm. He, he had a PhD in Heidegger. So, gosh, again, we're really using some big names today because most people go, who? <laughs> and yet another philosopher. But anyway, he has trouble finding work, which anybody who gets a PhD in Heidegger is going to have trouble, especially today, finding work. And uh, so, so a friend says, we well, got to be a consultant. And he goes, what's that? And he puts out a resume, I think, to like 40 different firms. Some British firm has a, the recruiter is in the States. They get together. He sits down with this British chap. And the man says to him, how many pubs in London? Yeah, Stuart has no idea. So he just throws out a number. And the guy says, you're hired. And uh, read the book to get the fuller picture there. Anyway, he says, four months later, I'm winging it across the Atlantic, reading this consulting, what he's going to do. And he goes, this is crap. Heidegger said this better. And he begins to realize there's a lot of fluff in this industry, but it makes a lot of money. Long and short of it, that he leaves and, and with a group of people, he sets out to start his own firm. Now, here's the point of this story, why I encourage you to read it. He will introduce people to Frederick Winslow Taylor. He will say the management, the big shift is when it went from accounting to accountability. Accounting is a mathematical thing. There's a place for that, of course. Accountability is these performance reviews where we're going to now use a scientific management approach to review your performance as a worker. Except because he knows Heidegger or the rest, Stuart makes this profound statement. They wanted to start a firm that was ultimately about love. That's why we do what we do, because we love it. Now, why would that be part of returning to healthier, more beneficial performance reviews? I'm I'm not sure I I could envision what a performance review around love would be. <laughs> Nor can I accept. You know the old adage is here's another quote from Lewis. Essentially, he said, you know, there's only one correct path, but there are ten thousand wrong ones. In other words, there's only one way the world rotates. In another place, he said, if you go against the way the world rotates, you get splinters. So let me take you back to Genesis. So what's this thing all about? Why did he create the heavens and the earth and then us? In one word, why? I'm going to go for love here. There you go. Ding! <laughs> you picked the right door. Door number one, number two, or number three. <laughs> Pat, you've just won a brand new mid-engine Corvette. <laughs> Which does look like one heck of a car, by the way. Anyway... So, yes, love. Love is the reason why we exist. God, Father, Son, Spirit loved each other for eternity. Love is the enjoyment of the circle, the desire to expand the circle. 
You can't expand the circle with more gods because God is not a created being. You can create beings like God in his image. Us, humanity, to be his bride. He wants to wed. Father, Son, Spirit want to wed their joy with us. So what's going on in Genesis? This is love at work. This is why readers, <clears throat> another good book is uh, James K.A. Smith. He's a professor up at Calvin College. I think his most recent book is titled, I don't know if it's it, but it's, a, it's the best book in my opinion. You Are What You Love. Why is that? Because God is what he loves. God is love. God doesn't choose to love. God doesn't say, no, I think I'm going to do, I think I'm going to love Pat today. He is love. So God is what he loves. We are what we love. Now here's where we're getting at with performance reviews and what Stuart, no evidence he's a believer, is stumbling on is um, what Augustine said. Augustine wrote this in the Confessions. My weight is my love. Wherever my loves carry me, there I go. My weight, the Latin word gravitas, is my loves. Now let me take just a quick detour and then come back to this, Pat. And then we'll, we're going to talk candidly here about what's happening in the Christian faith. So 2020 has been one hell of a year. But it's also been a year that I've grieved over the number of clergy that have fallen because of sexual sin. And this is predates 2019. It goes across the board, Catholic, Protestant, last week. Uh, the Hillsong pastor. And ask yourself this question, Pat. I bet you got great performance reviews. I bet you he's did a lot of series, a sermon series on uh, sex. Why didn't he practice what he preached? If you ask Augustine, rather, yeah. why didn't he practice what he preached? Because he, uh, I mean, he didn't love it. That's a simple way to put it, but. That's right. He didn't love it the way God loves it. What if he had had a performance review that was this? I don't know him. And there is mercy and forgiveness. There are consequences, though. I think you lose the authority to be a pastor. I can't rob a bank and say, okay, forgive me. And, uh, but I still want to preach. But what if a uh, performance review had gone like this? <clears throat> or even for yourself, Pat. Or what if small groups in churches did this, similar to uh, what Wesley did initially at Oxford? Is, uh, Pat, we'd like to for you to list the top 10 things that you love in the order in which you love them. And we don't want you to gild the lily. And then based on what we know of you and what we observe and notice, 
we're going to write what we think are your top 10 months. And then we're going to compare notes. If listeners have never read about the Wesleyan bands and the questions they ask every time they get together, you do yourself a favor by Googling them. If you can't find them, let us know. We'll, we'll dig them up and post them somewhere on our, on our website. Because they start out like this. Pat, what sins have you committed this week? Second question, what sins have you committed that you've not disclosed? Third, have you confessed those sins? And maybe it just goes, you read those things and you go, this would disembowel most Christians. They would go, they would run for the hills. But here's my point. And I do have a point here. <clears throat> I mean, one of the largest mega churches you know, up in Chicago. I think it's reeling today because of pretty much alleged, we'll still say alleged, widespread alleged sexual misbehavior by the pastor. Well, if Augustine was right, that you're going to gravitate towards your loves, wouldn't it be better to do a review on what you love? Because that's where you're going to gravitate in the end. You're going to gravitate to what you love. If you love being the smartest guy in the room, that's where you're going to gravitate. If you love controlling people, that's where you're going to gravitate. If you love gilding the lily, you're going to gild the lily on your performance review. If you love being invulnerable, you're going to create a performance review where there are landmines that everyone's aware of that they touch on those. This thing will blow up in their face. If you love riches beyond what is appropriate, then you're going to, you're going to, you're going to do performance reviews and the rest to get you there. Now I understand that we, this is, so I guess I'm saying two things. First of all, the church could actually lead the way here with better performance reviews. First, at least as I understand it, it's been my experience, and I grant you this is just anecdotal. I rarely hear of a pastor getting a rigorous annual performance review. If the church is growing, giving's good, everyone's glad. Then the next thing you know, Pastor's having an affair with the secretary or dipping his hand in the till. And everyone's shocked. Shame on the church. But let's just say the church became a model for that. So the business people in the church would go, you know, I'd like to in some way generalize this out with all without the the weight of scripture. But based on human nature, which the church used to be considered the expert on human nature, generalize this out into a performance review that I could use at my software company that would do what uh, Matthew Stewart's talking about here, that we would try to ascertain what you love 
In fact, if you don't love being here and love the work you do, we'll help you try to find the place because life is too short to slog through it, to be what uh, years ago uh, Kimball called a wage slave. Now I'm preaching, but tough. <laughs> Listeners can turn this thing off at any time. Well, but here's what I say. I go, okay, go ahead. Last comment. Do you and your wife, Maddie, uh, ever kind of just talk about, hey, hey, how are we doing as a marriage? Yeah. <clears throat> and what would be your ultimate aim? I think that, that we love each other well. Yeah, there you go. So again, what we're seeing here is what happened with the Industrial Revolution, the great split between the home and work. It's when the old English word for robbery, a job, came into play. Now we go work at a job, which is considered robbery. Well, you still hear people say, hey, they did a bank job. And so once you've got this sort of uh, division, that's where I found when I used to consult with businesses, I would say, and we actually got close to what we're talking about here is I would say, hey, let me ask you, how many of I go to your home, you have a mission statement on the wall? <laughs> yeah, that's right. They laugh, they go, that'd be absurd. And I go, really? Well, but it's not absurd here. Oh, no, we got to have a mission statement. <laughs> okay. <laughs> why? Uh, you know why? Frederick Linsel too, because they won't work otherwise. Well, why is that? I don't, I think if they had the chance, they wouldn't work at all. I think that's what they really love. They want universal basic income. Or they want to one day retire. That's what they really want. So they're going to bust their butt for X amount of years and be a miserable retiree in Florida. <laughs> My wife and I used to, in the middle of winter, go down for a week. And we swore we are not going to end up like half the people in this restaurant. <laughs> who, because, they, first of all, they're they're elderly. They weren't looking at each other. They were griping about the family. It's so cold in here. And you go, <laughs> is this the way it ends? Where the driving things in your life, what you love most is warm weather, sunshine, and you don't pay any state income taxes. Now listen, I am not crazy about winters in Maryland. I love sunshine and warmth. But to, but to make that the, the gravitational pull of my life, this, you know, what Augustine was saying is, it's just like the sun has the greatest gravity in, the, in our solar system and it, it it governs the orbits of everything else. And if your great love in life is to be set for life, I think that's a pathetic life. So, Mike, I'd like to circle back to the, that conversation where you have, you know, the 
what are, what are your five loves? I could, I could actually see that in a, in a review, maybe not necessarily love, but you could phrase that to where it's not. So, uh, what do you get your greatest form? joy out of? Yeah. Yeah. What do you get your yeah. greatest joy of here? Even what yeah. do you love about this team or, or your position yeah. here? Mm-hmm. And you have your observations or maybe if it's uh, some type of effective performance review, you know, you have uh, observations of several uh, bringing to the table there. And, and you talk about that. Let's say there's a, diver- a divergence, what, what they think they love, what you see, and maybe even some negative pieces there. Uh, mm-hmm. You love to, to draw attention to yourself, you know, something, mm-hmm. something like that. That's, that's maybe not what you're looking for in the team. So right. h- how does that conversation go? uh in in helping that person become better and i will say what i like about this is it's understanding we're here to help grow you as an individual and in a, in a person help you become better not just we're here to make sure you fit as a cog in our machine but that's right how does that conversation go yeah that's a great question pat uh another good book then for readers would be uh the book uh, joy at work by baki dennis baki where he tried to instill this uh, in his uh, the energy distribution company they started 30, 40 years ago. Joy at work, blow-by-blow account of what it's like, first as a private and then a publicly held company, worth the read, joy at work. Same thing that we're saying here. So for a performance review, the reason um, this could be helpful is exactly what you just said, Pat, is that the performance review is not how do you measure up but um, are you really happy here? Uh, do you think this is what you really want to do? Uh, so it takes more of a servant approach to, uh, to someone in this regard. So we did, uh, uh, years ago with the company, we did these drawing exercises. It was basically, why are you here? It wasn't done in that tone. It was mostly, you know, the CEO is great at sending a signal we want to serve. So we did these drawing exercises. And I'll never forget one of the warehouse workers drawing uh, a big yacht with Beyonce on the bow. (laughs) Which did. I mean, we laughed out loud. But I also, you know, just I filed away in the back of my mind. I don't think you'll be here in two years. Because he just doesn't love what we love here to have a company where people have joy. There's nothing wrong with wanting a yacht with Beyonce on it. Well, maybe her husband be, would object to that. But, <laughs> you, but so you get the point. So I think that what you could do, I think it would be very intriguing to watch someone skillfully work this out, which I think they tried to do at, at Baki's company, is at the end of the day, you used an example, Pat, just a moment ago. If, um, oh, yeah, yeah. You said, uh, well, what if they get like the uh, the 360? So others say unduly critical or sourpuss or this or that. If that, because you can love being a sourpuss, then a performance review can say, suggest, you know, this is going to play itself out over the next few years. And we're not sure that's going to be helpful for our company. And we sure don't think it's going to be helpful for you. And we'd like to help you either address it or maybe find a place where you'd be happier. And I say in this regard, so my wife has been uh, 
in the public, uh, the county public schools for, uh, gosh, 18 years now, somewhere in there. But um, when she first came in, I was just stunned by how many people in what was used to be called a noble profession, education, were sourpusses. And I remember thinking, I wanted to say to some of these teachers, I sure as hell hope you don't affect my kids. They were cynical, but they were hanging out for one thing. What was that? I don't know. Pension. Oh, wow. Sure. Fully vested. I know. Do you know how many... You know where Grisham, John Grisham has made his money is he writes these, they're fun to read, but the theme is generally the same. A lot of attorneys go in to law school thinking they're going to change the world, save the day, be Perry Mason. I don't know that dates me. Um, and, you know, 10 years into it, they're stuck in this office. They are sourpusses. A man I used to work with hated it. He's in a large firm. Why do you stick it out? Pension. Doctors in the same way. I'm meeting an increasing number of doctors who are disillusioned with the whole business. I get it. There's parts of it that are pretty broken. But the fact of the matter is they went in to be the next Ben Carson or something like that. I mean, and to serve. It's a noble profession, as is any profession. And it becomes sourpusses. Well, that's going to be your gravitational pull. And if your gravitational pull is, I'm hanging on till I can get my pension. That's where this whole thing has gone south. And there's small wonder why a growing percentage of the population, younger people, many of them saying, I don't want to work like my parents did. Now, I don't think a universal basic income may be the answer. It's hard to imagine. But what they're saying is, I'm not even sure I want to work. Or if I do, it's work I want to love, or that I really enjoy. Now just hit the pause button right there and go back to Genesis and say, is that bad? No. Of course not. Is it realistic? Hard <laughs> to say. Probably, yeah, it's not. Probably but, not. For most. Okay. No. For most. But what if you were to say, okay, we think the, the intent is actually very honorable. It's actually very ancient. It's actually very good. You want to do what you love. You want, you want to leave a work signature on this. We just think if you want to go that way, it's going to take a whole lot of work. And it will include... Make sure you love this for the right reasons. I mean, if you're loving this thing to build out a company, to do an IPO, to have your select number of friends be on the inside on this initial IPO, rake in your 20, 10, 15, 100 million, and then have an exit strategy. Or as I worked with some Christians many years ago, they wanted to start a private equity firm. But in the end, what it's still cashed out to, what they loved most was we take, buy these companies out, strip out the assets. And I remember asking them, 
And what about all the displaced workers? He said, well, there's really nothing we can do about that because we want to <clears throat> take the assets and then take 10% and donate it to missionaries and mission and the church and mission faith organizations. Well, let's just say, by the way, that my consulting there didn't last very long. <laughs> oh boy. Because I said, guys, you're calling this loving God. But in this company here, where there's 550 people displaced, the amount of money you're going to give to church or faith organizations is not going to be able to, it's not enough to help these 550. I don't know the necessarily the answer, but private equity has become far too much predatory. And there are Christians in the middle of it. I think a performance review that was more thorough could at least create some dissonance in the minds of people to go well, back to your company. Oh, gosh, I really appreciate that. This wasn't devastating. But they've been saying, like several of people said, I seem to really love being uh, talking too much. And I've never thought about that. And they just want me to 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 take this company to the next level and to be a place where human beings flourish. Martin Seligman, S-E-L-I-G-M-A-M, has written some good books on this. Flourishing, they're called. And he's trying to help businesses become places where people flourish. And you're not going to flourish if you talk too much or if you don't listen well or if you want to be the smartest guy in the room or if you want to control people or you create uh, minefields where People understand, don't raise it with him. He'll blow his top, but he's a great guy. We got to keep him here. So this is great. Uh, I'm thinking, you know, especially in the software engineering industry, you work with a lot of very technically talented people who have some rough edges. Uh, One of the things I love about this industry is people that naturally love their work. uh, It doesn't really matter. They don't have to check some of the other boxes because they just do their work well. Um, in this situation, I like it because some of those people also have uh, quirks or other other things that that probably need to be uh, worked out a little bit, uh, like you mentioned, to help to help it really become a flourishing, healthy organization. However, what about the situation where you have someone who actually has all the right intentions, actually loves their work, but still just isn't isn't quite uh bringing the same level of skill to the team that other people are bringing it's clear this person's actually uh, not quite uh, helping the team to the same extent that others are like yeah. what do you do in that situation because that that yeah. the loves may align perfectly and it may be great but we're still missing something yeah well uh so uh, we've tossed out a lot of articles for people to read but i would encourage you to read uh we can give you the link to it um, the, uh, David Brooks wrote a good article in the Atlantic. It's lengthy. It's called uh, "America is Having a Moral Convulsion." It's our collapsing social net, is the idea, and a lot of it he has to, he said has to do with what he calls uh, Irving Crystal wrote about 1970 that life is becoming increasingly spiritually meaningless. Now, what does that mean? When you're in work that that takes into account whether we're spiritual beings and you think about the whole rather than just my individual whole, W-H, 
O-L-E. And this, this notion of a whole, that we're a whole company, then in your performance review, you can say, as we did, by the way, and we did this in another company many years ago, where I remember the CEO saying, we are right now a $33 million company. We anticipate one day being a $100 million company. And he very graciously said, and it's yet to be determined whether some of you will be with us then because the expectations are going to be higher in a $100 million company. And that will include skill level. And by the way, those that couldn't perform at that level, they worked really hard to help them find a place where they'd be happier. But it has to do with, you have to think of the company as a whole. And when you do reviews that way, you can actually frame it in such a way that your skill level is appropriate. And that's what he was saying to many people in this company is your skill level is appropriate for us at this performance level. But when we go to this level, uh, it's not unlike Pat, by the way, um, newsflash for most listeners. So I played college football back in the 1870s. I'm sorry, 1970s. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they just introduced this thing called leather helmets. It was so cool. And now, <laughs> but you know what becomes important, what becomes obvious is um, in who recruits you and who doesn't, uh, skill level. And the reason they did, and I remember one of the recruiters saying to me that we're recruiting you because we we really do want you to play well. But what we have to take into account is what level are you capable of playing at? The last thing you want is, you know, Mike Metzger recruited by uh, Nick Saban in Alabama. That's going to be miserable for Mike, and it's going to be not helpful for Alabama. That's so in the same way a company can take that. But see, they have to think about the whole because – they're a playing at a peak level. And when you're playing at a peak level, you need peak performers with peak skills. Is that helpful? It is in terms of, of overall direction. Yeah. I think the, the specifics of like, so what is that now we're sort of back to, well, how do, how do we gauge the, the, the skill at that level? That's right. What things, what things we look at for that. And that, that sort of gets us back to this measuring piece, the original question. But I think what, what's helpful is we've now reframed the conversation and started with love and, and loving not only work, but um, what is it you love about being here? Uh, where do you find your joy? But now we're talking about maybe the specifics of measurement. So, yeah, yeah, I think so. And I think that because you were saying, what if someone isn't performing at a level? Well, I, I saw that, for example, in the, uh, the little bit I was in the uh, editing industry in New York. You know, so if you're going to edit, you have to read at a certain level. You're going to be otherwise you're going to be miserable and your reviews are going to be miserable. Uh, you know, you're going to hear words you don't understand. You don't have a background in them, blah, 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 blah. Now, does that mean you couldn't edit uh, your local paper? Of course you could. You'd probably be happier. You'd probably do better. And it would, and it would fit the, your skill level. So that's what I was talking about, that a mm. performance review can um, 
I think that the CEO did it well years ago because he was saying, everyone here, we love you. And he, he would say that, we love you. And, but part of what we have to measure in going, if it does happen as we imagine to this next level, it's a difference between, for example, copy editing your high school yearbook as I did versus copy editing from McGraw Hill. Sure. Yeah, that that's helpful because when it, we're thinking about uh, gauging an individual in that regard, if we view them as either an animal or more commonly today as just a machine, then we immediately start with skills. What are your inputs and outputs and, and how do we gauge that? Whereas mm -hmm. if we're really, if we're going to step back and talk about performance, well, that's something far, far bigger than just inputs and outputs. If we can talk about your specific skills, okay, yeah, let's, we'll go down that path. But if we're talking about performance, there, there's more that we, sh we ought to take into account as, as particularly as, uh, as leaders in an organization. Yeah. I mean, so my wife's a fabulous cook. I mean, I'm not saying this because I'm married to her, but. I mean, the first time I had her spaghetti, I said, this is the woman I want to marry. <laughs> but uh, when she went to work for a caterer, the skill level went up. Hmm. Because this was the premier caterer in Annapolis. So you don't work here if you don't perform at this level because we can't serve crab cakes that are subpar for what we're charging. Yeah, that's good. That's helpful. I miss those days because she would bring the leftovers home. <laughs> she doesn't miss those days because she would bring them home at two in the morning after an exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> Love you, Kathy. <laughs> so to summarize, I, I think it, it, there, are, there are ways that an organization, and this is what uh, Matthew Stewart's trying to get at in his book, are there ways that an organization could get back to uh, you really love your work. And, and let me let me cap it with this. There is a gap right now that is growing. That those at the very top of organizations generally love it and they love what they're doing. They've carved out the kind of life that they love. The question is, Shalom is the Bible talks about it, asks this question. It goes to the bottom of the organization and says, would you love doing this? Would you be happy doing it this way? Is this flourishing for this person? I have just found in most organizations around the world where I've been, that question is not asked. They don't walk the shop floor because I think they would find if they were, uh, I won't get into any of the details of any industry, but the fact of the matter is I think for a lot of them, they would go, nah, I wouldn't want to do this for, I wouldn't want to do this for a long time. Uh, I'll come visit, try to encourage the troops. I wouldn't want to do it. Well, if you wouldn't want to do it, that's not love. You've created a business where you have people doing what you don't want to do. That's not love. You love the wrong things in the wrong way. And someone ought to begin to start some kind of review 
even for the top. I mean, the old joke, by the way, remember, Pat, is if you're really successful, you don't get a decent performance review after the age of 35. Because mm. everybody wants to be in, you know, riding your coattails or in your business. So you're not about to say anything that's going to be that detrimental to the boss. Well, that too is that's part of the uh, profound dysfunction of so many organizations. I mean, someone ought to say to some teachers, public, private, doesn't matter. I see it more in the public schools. Listen, if you really are you really this miserable, let's help you find something else to do. Now, I know it's hard in the economic downturn. I get it. I know it's hard. And, you know, people rag on. Starbucks every once in a while. But I'm less inclined to do it because, God bless him. I, t I spoke once to a guy, he's a regional guy. And he said, we know a lot of people feel stuck here. And so they created this alliance with Arizona State University, perhaps the most innovative university out there, to try to help them get a college degree. It's a lot like saying, we know this isn't your dream job. Which is a, another way of saying, if Schultz were still ahead of it, I wouldn't want to do this day in and day out. But we recognize that we're going to help you try to get somewhere. This could be the interim. And I know with the COVID and the crash and the unemployment, these things right now are very hard to get towards. But I actually think COVID is an opportunity to capitalize and say, let's rethink this thing, including performance reviews. And let's see if there's a way that people could, we could help them either love what they're doing more so they're not feeling what, what Irving Crystal wrote about is, is spiritually meaningless. And if it's spiritually meaningless, Pat, we will become like a country where if, if work is spiritually meaningless, you're more and more going to want a government that's going to give you a universal basic income so you don't have to go off to a meaningless job. And then the fortunate few in this growing wage disparity will be the ones who can be the titans of technology and the rest, live where they want, make a lot of money. I don't disparage that, but they don't have to walk the shop floor and go, I wouldn't want to live this way.